Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argus Singer. From Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you, gents. How hey. you doing, Chris? Earnings season kicked off this week. We will dig into some of the early results. The strong run of the housing industry is starting to show signs of fatigue. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. This week, the Federal Reserve revealed that the bond buying program, which has been steadily tapered over the past year, will end in October. And Ron, Mm. we knew this is coming. I don't know about you. I was still surprised that they put this out and confirmed this three months in advance. You know, it's interesting if you find this kind of stuff interesting. (laughs) Of course. And hopefully our (laughs) listeners will. There's a few conflicting pieces of data. Um, One is you have the Fed and others lowering GDP forecasts. Partially because of the first quarter winter weather, partially other reasons. But you also have unemployment coming down nicely. So they have to balance all this, and they have to think about interest rates and inflation, because that's the next thing we need to worry about. So I think on balance, they think, let's take away the quantitative easing, focus on interest rates and inflation going forward. You support them then? I think I support them. You think you think you support them? <laughs> I, think, okay. I think I support okay. them. Well, and James, to that point, they, the Fed also said, look – Whenever interest rates rise, that's going to have no bearing. So no one should necessarily start a clock countdown at when the tapering program ends in October and say, okay, well, it's absolutely going to be three months, six months, whatever. Correct. Yeah, they were noncommittal, you know, which is kind of what they do by definition. And let's remember, too, that the, 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 these people are social scientists. They're economics. You know, they're not real – they're economists, not real scientists. In other words, the only way we could actually know if anything the Fed does is correct is if we could have a parallel universe, <laughs> or several of them, and, and have the Fed test different scenarios in each one. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally impossible. So who, who knows? I mean, maybe it's the right move, maybe it's not. As long as they're confident, I think that's what people want. I think if you see unemployment dip into the fives, then you'll start to see people getting worried more about inflation, and you'll start to see interest rates um, accelerate, the, the rise in interest rates, they'll move it up a quarter. Um, certainly so, by 2015 and 2016, we're looking at higher rates, whether it's, you know, anything happens next couple of quarters, it's, it's anyone's Presumably, guess. though, if the higher rates come at the, at the expense of or, or come alongside a, a robust economy, that's okay, right? Um, what we wouldn't want is, you know, a lame economy and higher rates. That would be bad. Well, I'm, all, I'm, I'm just happy that we, we're, we're one step closer to getting out of the excuse business, which is the, the you know, the, sort of the negative pundits on the economy and the market keep coming out and saying, oh, well, the Fed's been pumping so much money in. Well, well thank God we'll be in a situation in four or five months where there just won't be this extraordinary stimulus. We'll actually be able to see if the economy... Um, and the market is standing. What do we on talk so, about so on the radio? <laughs> well, when the for, Fed for pumping in. What the Fed said they will do is, as these bonds that they've been buying so many of, as they mature, they're still going to reinvest those proceeds for the time being until it's time to start increasing interest rates. Um, so we'll still have some sort of a stimulus. It won't be new money injected, though. Shares of specialty retailer the Container Store down around ten percent this week after first quarter results included a drop in same store sales for the first time in nearly four years. And Maddie, uh, Chairman and CEO Kip Timble, uh, Kip 
Tyndall. Easy for you uh, to say. <laughs> not so much. Um, he said, look, this is more than just the weather, and I'm quoting here. He said, consistent with so many of our fellow retailers, we are experiencing a retail funk. That doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good, but I still am trying to figure out what he exactly means by funk because, I mean, is he talking about – Middle, upper middle class to wealthy females, because that's generally who shops at the container store. Maybe they're in a funk. Um, who knows? But, you know, just yeah, being de- down 10% for the week, this is also a company that's down 50% from its all-time high, 30% from its IPO. Uh, you know, when I look at the results, you mentioned the same store sales being down. Uh, you know, net sales were actually up only 9%. Um, it just this this is this is a company that came in with a lot of momentum, trades for more than 40 times forward earnings, and these are kind of these are really not numbers that support that kind of valuation. So I'm, I'm a little concerned here about the container store. What worries me is some comments he made the CEO about you know we all we all thought this was winter weather related in the first quarter, and it, it appears that something else is perhaps going on here. And he used that phrase retail funk, which is a weird phrase, but we'll give we'll let him get away with it. Um, that does concern me because as as we spoke about earlier, lowering GDP forecast for this year, people are not too concerned about that because they're saying well it's kind of artificial because it was the weather in the first quarter. If there's other things going on here and consumers aren't spending, then maybe the economy really is weaker than we think, and it's going to take a while for, for those lower unemployment rates to catch up with consumers who will then hopefully go back into stores. I mean, I've gone to the container store from time to time when I feel like paying twice as much as I need to for a <laughs> container. Uh, but, but is this is, is the sale, are the sales there more correlated to, to GDP or employment? I mean, is it more of a it's, housing it's thing? Housing. How, okay, that's I what would, I would think. Yeah. I, I would think existing um, home sales probably drive it. We'll get to housing in a second, but broadening the lens of retail, we also saw this week uh, Costco, their same-store sales in June were up 6%. We we saw uh, American Express getting an upgrade based on one analyst firm believing that they're, we're going to see more consumer spending in the second half of 2014. So I, I think the jury is still out on sort of where we are in retail in general. Uh, let's move on to housing. Lumber Liquidators does not report second quarter results until the end of the month, but shares down 20% on Thursday after the company lowered guidance, not just for the second quarter, but for the full fiscal year. Ron, Brutal. this is a stock that you watch closely in, with your team at Million Dollar yep. Portfolio. How bad is this? Well, if you if you watch the stock's performance, it was brutal. Um, I don't think long term it, it's it's that bad, but I think this this year could continue to be shaky. And we get back to some of the things we were just discussing. The thought was that the week first quarter, the pent up demand um, that occurred because of the that bad winter would um, come back in the second quarter, and sales would jump. Lumber liquidators didn't see that. They saw it early in the second quarter, but then it dropped off. So that that's troubling. Where, where are these sales coming for? Uh, when are they going to come? Hopefully they will. Is it later this year? Is it into 2015 at this point? Uh, lumber liquidators also had some supply issues because they tightened up, tightened up requirements um, from Chinese suppliers, and a lot of those Chinese suppliers could not meet those tougher requirements. Um, so they've had to clean up some of those issues as well. So it was kind of a double whammy, but the biggest one is that is that customer demand. Yeah, Maddie, I was surprised by the ripple effect of this. I understand lumber liquidator stock being down 20% in a single day, but when you broaden it to the housing industry and you see tile shop, you know, a specialty sort of home improvement store, shares down there. But even the big guys like Home Depot and Lowe's getting hit too. Right. I, I don't know how much this is a harbinger for the rest of the of the housing industry, but there is an underlying story out there about the fact that um, you know last year, 2013, was such a strong year for housing. And a lot of that may have been built on the fact that there were a lot of investors out there 
buying properties, uh, renovating them, renting them, or even flipping them. Um, and this year, those investors, there's not a strong uh, current as there was last year. A lot of the um, real estate this year is, is just back to, hey, you know, first-time home buyers, which, by the way, still can't get a mortgage in a lot of places. And so, it's, it's, we're, we might be seeing what the real estate market actually looks like on a sustainable basis. And it, it, it might not be that pretty for, for most I, of the industry. I, I agree with a lot of that. I actually don't think it's that bad in housing. It's just a little bit bad in comparison to last year. We're down about 5% from ex- existing home sales from where we were at this time last year. Um, obviously, we'd like to see growth, not contraction. Overall, though, I don't think the housing market looks that shaky, just kind of relative to last year. Coming into this week, Wells Fargo had reported record profits for 15 consecutive quarters. That streak came to an end on Friday when second quarter profits came in at $5.7 billion, just slightly lower than the previous quarter. And James, shares of Wells Fargo down a little bit on Friday Really? Just because the streak came to an end? Well, a few other things. I mean, any bank obviously has a lot going on in any re- release. It's, it's very complicated, but yeah, maybe the simple analogy of Wells Fargo were taking its investors on a date. Uh, it probably took them somewhere between a, a Baja Fresh and a, an Olive Garden this quarter. I mean, like a okay place, but it's not really sending the message they want. Uh, I mean, this, this is the largest U.S. bank now by, by deposits, I believe, the largest U.S. mortgage lender. And and speaking of housing, I, mean, they did, I think they did $112 billion in home lending last year. On a quarter, this is $47 billion this year. So it's a, quite a drop. Uh, net interest margin dropped. Uh, their loan loss reserve uh, got cut because of better credit quality, cut to a third of what it was last year which is really great in one sense, but you can only uh, do that so much. I mean, that's not a permanent uh, win for, for this kind of a company. So I mean, there's some po- car lending was up 11%. There's definitely some positives, but, but it's more of a, a neutral quarter on average. It seemed like short-term thinking in terms of the stock selling off. I don't know. It just reminded me of the old phrase, do a little bit more than everyone expects, and soon everyone will expect more. And it's like, well, wait a minute, 15 quarters of record profits wasn't yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Wells Fargo looked great because they made it through their financial crisis a lot better than most other places. They're one of the few just regular banks, and most of the banks became non-regular banks, I guess, to, to make a lot of money doing other things, and Wells didn't do it as much. Uh, but but it's also kind of a, of a testament to, to regular banking just not as great of a business, too. Do you take your first dates to Baja Fresh, so the second date you can re- really <laughs> wow them better, and you yeah. get to overperform then? <laughs> Coming up, one restaurant chain is getting a makeover, and the number one analyst of that restaurant chain just happens to be right here. Stay with us. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Matt Argusinger, James Early, and Ron Gross. Alcoa marks the unofficial start of earnings season, and shares hit a two-year high this week after second-quarter profits came in higher than expected. Aluminum, not the sexiest business in the world, Matt, but, man, the stock's looking good. Alcoa's getting it done. Awfully good lately. You know, getting kicked out of the Dow about a year ago was the best thing that ever happened yeah. to Alcoa. I mean, the <laughs> stock's almost doubled since then. Uh, no, the, the results were really good. The net profit was $216 million for the quarter, $0.18 cents per share. That was versus expectations of $0.12 cents a share. Um, you know, aluminum pricing, 13-month high, definitely hot. Uh, global demand for aluminum is supposed to be up 7%. And when you think about the operating leverage that a company like Alcoa has in the business, 
those are all very good things. There's also the um, they've also seen a lot of strength in the automotive space. Um, so, for example, the F-150, which is you know best-selling vehicle, one of the best-selling vehicles in the country, best-selling truck for sure. Um, they're moving to a more aluminum body, um, and that that is huge news for a company like Alcoa. So, if that's the trend in automotive, where they're going for lighter, more efficient vehicles using aluminum versus steel, um, again, good things for Alcoa. So, not surprised it's at a, it's at a two-year high. Big tobacco in the news on Friday. Reynolds American and Lorillard confirmed they are in talks for a potential merger. Uh, these are two of the biggest cigarette makers in America, James. And combined, that's a pretty significant new rival to Altria yeah. Group, the yeah. uh, parent company of Philip Morris. Yeah, the backstory here, Chris, is over the past uh, actually many decades, cigarette sales have been declining uh, every year in the U.S. And I, I guess that's what happens when you have a product that kills your customers. Um, so so uh, for, for Reynolds, allegedly, allegedly, right? Uh, for, for Reynolds, which makes Camel and Pall Mall, you know, the, they've had major declines also in, in market share, and that's not good for them. But the uh, Lorillard makes Newport, which has the menthol cigarette. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, so I'm just reading about this. But <laughs> the menthol cigarette apparently has a, a loyal following uh, that has been declining a lot less. Its declines have been much smaller. So they think, hey, we want to have this uh, loyal business. Uh, uh, this Lorillard has, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're both small compared to Altria, which has just over half the market. But, you know, you combine a, a 27% market share and a 15% market share for Reynolds and, and Lorillard, and, and you get something that's a strong, very strong number two competitor. Uh, any interest? Because you, you're a dividend guy, but you're also, uh, as longtime listeners know, you're someone who is able to separate his personal habits with his investing habits. You know, I can recommend an alcohol company because I feel like alcohol can be consu- – I don't drink either, but I feel like that can be consumed like responsibly. But a fun guy at parties. I don't, I don't think tobacco can, so, so I, I just can't get near it. Uh, before our final story, I want to say thanks to a couple of members who stopped by Fool Headquarters while they were here in the D.C. area on vacation. Uh, Chris Davidson, uh, on vacation, came in with his family from Wilmington, Delaware, uh, and Mike Ginsburg and his family were visiting from Chile. So, uh, Chile. Cool. Chile, yes. Uh, so thank you to, to those folks for stopping by. This week, Olive Garden rolled out the first phase of a rebranding campaign that includes a redesigned website for takeout ordering and, most importantly, a remodeled restaurant featuring new decor, a more modern lobby and bar area, and fewer walls to create a more open atmosphere. And as I said before the break, America's foremost analyst on the Olive Garden is with us on the other side of the glass. I'm referring, of course, to Steve Broido. Uh, Steve, they're going to be rolling this out to about 10% of their restaurants this year. First, are you excited about the possibility that the Olive Garden you frequent in Northern Virginia could be one of them? Not really. I I love the niche kind of uh, closed-off, heavily carpeted, very cozy <laughs> environment that exists. You're not looking to mingle with other people at the Olive Garden? Definitely not. Steve, Do- I, we've never asked, what is your preferred entree at Olive Garden? Well, I, I always taunt my wife that I'm going to do the tour of Italy, but I don't usually. I usually do chicken parm. <laughs> uh, do you have any advice in terms of remodeling for the business? Because you clearly have your own ideas about what you think will and should work for them. I love restaurants that are quiet and that are uh, are cozy feeling. Uh, big open spaces in, for dining don't always work because uh, noise. It's loud. And Olive Garden is, is a fairly quiet restaurant, at least. That's what my experience is. At least is. it are used to be. The only one in there? Is that why it's quiet? <laughs> no, sir. There's often a wait. 
Wow. Get there early. All right, let's get to the stocks that are on our radar this week. And Steve Royda will hit you with a question. Uh, Ron Gross, you're up first. What do you got? Steve, I got Titan International, TWI. They're a small cap manufacturer of wheels and tires for industrial and agricultural um, applications and vehicles. Uh, Q1 was weak. Q2 might even be weak. Um, the cycle will turn. Agriculture and industrial companies will need wheels once again at some point, And the stock was undervalued by about 60%. Steve, question about Titan? Is making wheels challenging? <laughs> seems like the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, there's a lot of technical there's things a, that happen, Right. There is the there's technical. There's specifications that need to be met. There's certainly there's safety more round. involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the rounder, the better we find. And yet, as we hear over and over, no one's looking to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> there you go. So you just got to be really good at it. Uh, James? I'm going with China Mobile. This has a 4.3% yield. It's the world's largest mobile phone company. Uh, it competes against uh, China Mobile. There's China Telecom, China Unicom. Uh, they, they save money on naming consultants, apparently. Uh, <laughs> these are all state-owned companies, but China Mobile was handicapped for a long time. It could not use the, the normal 3G standard. It had to use its own self-developed one to promote Chinese industry, and even its competitors could use the higher standard. But now with 4G coming out, it's an open playing field again. So that handicap is, is removed. They can use the, the normal 4G standard, and they have a ton of cash. They're building out all these towers. They'll have the, probably the world's largest 4G network uh, and sometime soon. Steve, question about China Mobile. Is there a landline infrastructure that's strong uh, in China? Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, uh, it's, you know, other companies do that. And China Mobile has a weakness, actually. They don't have a lot of broadband and, and you know, internet uh, accessibility like some of the other companies do. But there, there is landline there. Matt Argersinger, what's on your radar this week? Sure. Well, we talked about Alcoa earlier. The one I'm looking at right now is ArcelorMittal, ticker MT. You made that up. Uh, yeah. It doesn't really <laughs> exist. It just happens to be the biggest steel company in the world. Uh, but no, the, the you know, if I'm thinking about companies like basic materials, utilities, energy, industries that have really lagged the, the, the bull market rally that we've seen in, in recent years, and ArcelorMittal is just trading less than book value. Uh, you know, in, in peak economies, ArcelorMittal can trade up to three times book. I just think it's cheap and very well run. Like Alcoa, they've done a lot to streamline their operations as well lately. Steve? Something that you think should never be made out of metal. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Shoes. <laughs> No, what about steel? TP. What about, what about steel toe boots? Yeah, I mean oh, that's a, that's yeah. a safety oh, item oh, 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 on construction sites. That's right. I was going to go pillows. Do you have an idea of what shouldn't be made out of steel, Steve? Anything at the Olive Garden. That's what I'm <laughs> nice and soft and quiet. Uh, a pretty broad range of stocks there, Steve. Mobile steel uh, wheels and tires. Uh, anything of interest to you as an investor? Uh, the mobile China Mobile sounds interesting. I think. Uh, Given a huge population that's probably going to be moving mobile, as, as our population has, it seems very interesting. All right. Drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Send in your stock ideas and send us your questions. Ron Gross, James Early, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Coming up from Europe to Japan and back here to the States, we are going to go around the world of investing with portfolio manager Bill Mann. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bill Mann is the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. And unlike the last time he was on the show, back in January, where he joined me from Motley Fool offices in London, he actually joins me here at Fool headquarters. I finally made it back. <laughs> it took you that long to get back? Uh, uh, it's good to see you, as always. Uh, there are a bunch of things I want to talk about, including the recent shareholder event yeah. uh, that you had with uh, Motley Fool Funds. We but had a huge turnout, and it was actually a, an historic event because it was the first time that Chipotle's concept shop house 
catered. They, you know, we talked to them and they, they, they agreed to come out and do it. And they did a fabulous job. I mean, people were, I don't know if they liked me at all. They loved lunch. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's, let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about you. No, no, no not about you. But let's, <laughs> let's talk about this because this is something, you bring something up with Chipotle that I've wondered for a while and I've, I've only been a shareholder for about a year or so. Yeah. But it seems to me that for all the things they do right and they do many things right as a business, I'm curious why they are so conservative with expansion. Uh, not just of the Chipotle stores, but the the shop house concept's been around for a few years. Yeah, I think you only need um, you know ten fingers to count the number of locations they have around the country, and, and you might have too many. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, I'm curious. You've studied this company. You've actually met with executives. Yeah, uh, am I? Do you, first, do you agree that they are being overly conservative? Not at all. Not at all. Because the because the Chipotle model only works if they've got a great product and they get th- people through the experience of ordering very quickly. And so that's Shophouse has actually rejiggered the entire. You know the entire board and the entire way that they do things from when they started. You know, so you go into a Chipotle and you say, "I'll have beans, and I'll have this, and I'll have this," and it happens to be, and it happens to work because it all happens to be Tex-Mex, you know, Mexac. I mean, it's you know, yeah. close enough to Mexican. But the shop house concept, as it started out, had a little Thai, had a little Vietnamese, had a little Chinese. So you, so it was much harder to get your head around how you should actually pick things. So they've really worked on the concept, and it's. I don't want to say it's radically different from what it is. I imagine in the back of the store, it's radically different than what it was. In the front of the store, it's just a, you know, it's, it's, it's an easier experience. But Chipotle has always said that they would expand as quickly as they had managers to run their stores. And the way that they get managers to run their stores is to have them working in an existing branches. So they're just not going to go that fast. They can't, they can't end to their mind, and I agree with them, they shouldn't just go out and try and create managers and force people into that funnel. It, you know, it, it, it does take time. The nice thing is the more stores they have, the more opportunities they have for people to be actually getting that managerial experience. But they won't they, – they really won't open any faster than they've got top men and top women to run them. All right, let's go back to what was going to be my first question. And I should mention uh, that we're taping this on Thursday. And the big story in the market today is overseas in Europe, where across the board, European markets were down. It turns out things aren't all better. uh, It turns out they're not. And in this case, it's Portugal's largest publicly traded bank. Yeah. uh, Which was already troubled. Already troubled. And trading was suspended. Uh, The parent company of the bank uh, was apparently having some trouble paying back some of their debts. Uh, Which seems bad for a bank. It seems very bad for a bank. (laughs) Um, We were talking about this earlier. Um, Your colleague, Tim Hanson at Motley Fool, Fool Funds, and you you guys seem relatively unsurprised that this is happening. Sure. I mean, the, the, the issue with the European banking system, the issue with the European economy in general is that it's, although it's better, it's not healed. I mean, the, 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 the European economy, particularly uh, in the peripheral countries, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, is is still quite impaired. And 
even if you believe that things are getting better and i you know and 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 i happen to believe that things are getting better but at a much slower rate than the stock market performance for europe and the european banks would have uh, would have suggested you know you're going to have bumps in the road and so this was a this was a very large troubled lender and the different thing about europe than in the us is that almost every bank in europe is actually too big to fail they don't have community banks they have a few massive banks in each market and then some that go across markets. So they, ha- they have their own version of Bank of America just cloned. Across- everywhere. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. So anytime that anytime that you have stress from a European bank, it is in some ways systemic. And that's that's bad. Well, so is is that why we see this across the board red ink on the European markets because on the flip side of that, you can look at Portugal and say this is not a very big company. <laughs> and the stat I saw was that the GDP for Portugal is equal to one half of that of your home state of North Carolina. Yeah. So I'm sure yeah. there are at least some investors saying, well, wait a minute. I get that it's the biggest publicly traded bank in Portugal, right. but that's not a very big place. Not a very big place, but the way that uh, you know, the, the, the way that finances have been structured in the European Union means that if, you know, if things go bad for Portugal, that other countries – have to come in and back them up. They 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 are truly not allowed to fail. So it's it it, it you can't ring fence it in the way that you could here. You know, uh, even a medium sized bank that gets into a tremendous amount of trouble here, and it, we've seen this. You just put a circle around it, and you know, and 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 the bank eventually goes away, and it's not as contagious. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Bill Mann, the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. We are just at the start of earnings season, and one of the results things- season, I think, was the joke we made. We've, yeah. <laughs> we've made before results season, yeah. Um, and and one of the narratives coming into this earnings season, uh, there are several, but one of them has to do with cash because mm-hmm. companies have more cash at their disposal than almost at any point in history. That's, by the way, part of why we've seen so much merger activity in the first half of 2014. That's why we're expecting to see even more merger activity in the second half. But I am curious, and I don't think I've ever asked you this before on the radio show, as someone who studies public companies for a living, how do you think about cash? Do you have a default way? You know, if James Early were here, I'm sure he would say that his default way that he likes to see companies use cash is just keep cranking up that dividend. Yeah. And that's fine. That's, Give it back to him. That's right. But I'm curious how you look at cash. So let's take the example of Chipotle once again. So Chipotle has its largest market is California, and its most saturated market is Colorado. And, and Colorado is. And that's some, where it's based. It's where it's based, exactly. So it makes sense. So, so Colorado has about five times as many stores per person or what's the reverse uh you know then then it then it does in in california so if you tell me that that chipotle is going to keep investing its stores just focusing on color on california until california has as many stores per capita as colorado i'm going to say that's that sounds like a great decision because they're making money hand over fist in Colorado as well. So for a company that has actual growth prospects and you look at the on-ramp and you say that that, you know, that, that Chipotle can continue to grow for a long, long time, I want them to retain everything. But on the flip side, you have companies that have grown for a long time and they get to the point where they've got 
90% of the market. Let's take, for example, uh, the big airlines. What you don't really want to see from the big airlines is for them to jam any free cash flow that they have, if any, back into trying to, you know, try, trying to make their market share bigger because they're in a fixed market. It's a Lord of the Flies situation where everything just comes at the cost of someone else. What you would really like from a company in that situation is for them to return cash to you. And so it really kind of depends. But um, what we don't want to see is companies that just retain huge amounts of cash and have no plans for them. A great investor that we know named David Nirenberg calls that the green blanket. I mean, it's, it's cozy. It feels great for them. They feel secure. But Money is capital, and your returns on capital are really negatively impacted by the amount of cash that you have that doesn't really get you know that doesn't really get used in the business. And do you think we are collectively at that point now where cash that's just being hoarded is cash that is being wasted? Because in late two thousand nine, maybe even all through twenty ten, you can make a good case for companies saying, no, 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 yeah. given what we just went through, yeah. we want a green blanket. Yeah, I would say that uh, cash being wasted isn't the right term for it. But I do, you know, as a citizen, I do think it is kind of bad for America that there is all this money sitting in places where it's not being used. I mean, to me, the economy goes, the economy grows and operates best when most of its assets are being used more efficiently. Cash sitting in the bank generating I mean, basically nothing now is not an efficient use. It's it's not going to go away. That cash isn't going to get destroyed. It could you know could get inflated away. So there's a bit of a negative return there. But there's 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 no real potential for destruction there. But there is a potential for the destruction of you know of of uh, of an economic speed and you know and and and, any, and an economic turnover that would be better for all of us if they weren't sitting on so much cash. Big boss man. Can't you hear me when I call? Coming up, more with Bill Mann. Stare it here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, joined in studio this week by Bill Mann, the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. Earlier this week, there was the annual shareholder event uh, for shareholders of Motley Fool Funds. It was a huge turnout, and we were really, really grateful that people came. It was just wonderful to see our see so many shareholders, and it's always just you know, very uplifting for us to be able to spend that time. Uh, one of the people, uh, part of the program was an interview uh, that Tim Hanson, your colleague, uh, one of the analysts at Motley Fool Funds, conducted uh, with the longtime and recently former CEO of Drew Industries. Yeah. And I was just struck by how smart this guy is, what a wonderful business he's run, and how you could pick a hundred investors at random, <laughs> and I would bet almost none of them are familiar with with, with this company. And it yeah. just sort of—I I thought this is perfect. This this in some way sort of crystallizes part of the approach <laughs> you guys take, which is, you know, there are a lot of companies. Where on earth did you find it? Yeah, yeah. Not only so, Drew Industries makes a lot of components that go into RVs and mobile homes and things like that. So I would go a little bit further. So people who buy RVs, they know. They're buying a Monaco coach. They're buying a Winnebago. They have no idea that about a quarter of the money that they're spending, you know, that that input is actually from Drew Industries. They have no, they have no idea. The little, the little slidey thing that makes the door, you know, the, the, uh, the window blow out when you park it, that's them. You can make money on that sort of thing, apparently. Apparently you can. <laughs> How do you find a company like that? 
So I think that we have a pretty simple model. You know, we're looking for companies that have returned uh, have have generated large returns of capital over an extended period of time. That, you know, it's pretty simple, and you can you can you can look at any screen you know a, a, any screening software, and it will tell you what this this is. So that for us, you know, that for us is a very simple start. What has made money over a long period of time? I think a lot of people tend to shorten their period of time. And so what they'll end up finding is companies that have done that, but, but have, you know, but have performed really well over, let's say the last year, let's hope the last year, sometimes it's the last quarter. I love companies that have returned capital, you know, who've generated super normal returns on capital for a long period of time, but that also happen to be at their 52 week low list or, you know, or happen to, to have generated a negative return on capital over the last year, because that tells me that those, you know, that they're probably super smart people involved and something happened you know something bad happened and so if you if you start thinking about companies from that perspective you're a little bit agnostic as to what what they are so you look at the list and it's all it's all weirdo stuff i mean it's all things that just that that you know that analysts aren't following they don't necessarily people don't necessarily have a handle on you know, think about the RVs. Nobody thinks of the RV industry as being great in a land, in a world of four dollar gas prices, but gas prices are kind of irrelevant to RVs. You know, drive them five hundred thousand miles. You know, you drive ten thousand miles a year or whatever. So, um, yeah. So anyway, for uh, for you know, for a company like Drew Industries, just focusing on companies that have extraordinary long term returns on capital, and that will blow. You know, that will come to the top. This month marks the five-year anniversary of the Independence Fund, yeah. which is the, the first fund at Motley Fool Funds. Uh, first, uh, congratulations on making it. We did it to the we, five-year we, mark. We made it because let's face it, n- not all uh, not a lot of funds make it to the five-year mark. Yeah. What do, What do you know about investing now that you didn't know five years ago? So I would say that the thing that I I, I will I will pay the industry a bit of a, a, a critique by complimenting us. So it's a perfect way to do it. What I what we have discovered is that people really, really do send money to you after shares have gone up. They really do. So we, uh, you know, we we at Motley Fool Funds have had uh, we, we've had positive subscriptions. That means more people have sent us money than have taken it out sixty months in a row since our inception. Every single month, we've gotten more money than has been taken from us. But we're weird in the industry. The industry really is cyclical, and people really do. They really do um, react on short term, you know, on on, on short term moves in the market. And the Motley Fool has always been very critical of of of, of uh, fund managers saying, "Well, you you know, most of you can't beat the S and P five hundred. In some ways, the industry is set up in a way that makes that very hard. And what really makes that hard is that the fact you know that that basic cash effect. I mean, the effect of cash coming into and out of funds at bad periods of time. Amazing, you know, knock on effects come from that. And you know, so that's something that we've uh, you know that that, that we figured was the case, but we've seen it really in action for, for, for a number of years now. In your most recent letter to shareholders, uh, you wrote about a topic that uh, I don't think I've ever seen touched on by a portfolio manager, and that's courage. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why courage? Yeah, why courage? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, well, I, I, I... Let me be more specific. Yeah. Why, why courage now? I get why in, an investor would say, in the depths of the Great Recession, 
you must have courage. Yeah. We're not there. We're yeah, at Dow seventeen thousand. Yeah, we're 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 certainly not there. I mean, the basis of the the basis of this letter is that if you feel comfortable with your investing and and the stocks that you hold, you might be. Yeah, you know, comfort comes at a, at a at a high price, and that is you know, and on an individual basis, that may not turn out to be true. But on a general basis, it is definitely true that you know Warren Buffett said, "You buy when you know buy the, when others are, are are fearful, or be greedy when others are fear, are fearful, and fearful when others are greedy." That really sounds easy, but you still have to do it, and it doesn't. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to say. Wow, stocks have really gone up a lot. I'm going to go look for things that are actually really beaten down because everything that's beaten down, particularly in a market that's gone up a lot, I mean, it looks awful. I mean, there are some, you know, there are some companies that look like they are going out of business in a big market, and they turn out to be the best winners over the future. And it really is easier to come up with examples when the market is down. But maybe the best example for us right now is emerging markets. You know, emerging markets underperformed uh, developed markets by about three thousand basis points this last year. They had they were almost uh, negatively correlated with uh, with 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 the developed markets, and people are afraid of emerging markets, and 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 the price is reflected. But if the price is reflected, that really ought to be where you go look. Speaking of going places to look, uh, I've said before, you're the most traveled person I know, and uh, that continues later this summer, uh, not just for you, but for the entire team at Motley Fool Funds with something you've dubbed Go Somewhere Month. Um, Share what that's all about. So we uh, we, we, we run funds that are both domestic and international, and we run them all out of Alexandria, Virginia. And we believe that... uh, being being separate from the rest of the uh, from most of the financial industry, you know, focused in, you know, based in London and New York and uh, you know um, Boston, that we have a little bit of an advantage. We have the ability to sit down and think, but we also believe very strongly in getting out and meeting the companies that we uh, own, that we want to own, you know, because we we spend a lot of time thinking about managers and management. So we have come up with a program the month of august happens to be a very slow month for uh for in in the fund industry so we try to make it as useful as possible so each of us are going to go to some place where there's a high concentration of companies that we can go and visit during that period during the during that month and make the most out of it and really be able to make better decisions uh in the future by virtue of having spent some time in those markets we've got just a few seconds left where are you going i'm going to go to tokyo yeah, I was a Japanese major, and uh, you know, I we, we J- Japan has been a very hard market to invest over the last twenty years. Last year was an incredible year for Japan. Uh, it's come back, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit, but uh, you know, it, it is a market that is changing very, very quickly at last. And so that's where I'm going to go and spend some time. All right, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You can read more from Bill Mann and his colleagues. Just go to FoolFunds.com. Sign up there for their free monthly newsletter, Declarations. That's at FoolFunds. Dot com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Gail Nuevo. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week. <laughs>